0: Hello and welcome to Say That, the podcast where your big questions get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. Joining me here is Jed Brewer. Hello! With us all the way from Roker, Tennessee is Lee Younger.
1: Yes, I'm
0: here. We have a great show lined up for you. We've got some of your fantastic questions. But first, we must start with one of our most common genres. It's a cinematic emergency. Oh, oh no! no. <laughs> and in this case, cinematic emergency may be in more ways than one. So uh, I'm going to take you through the the layers of the onion here, of why we're talking about this movie here on the Say That podcast, and it is called *Nefarious*. It is a movie about a demon. Ooh! So that's a little in our wheelhouse. It's a movie about a demon. Actually, I'll just read you the synopsis. On the day of his scheduled execution, a convicted serial killer gets a psychiatric evaluation. During which he claims he is a demon and further claims that before their time is over, the psychiatrist will commit three murders of his own. So that sounds like, among other things, a real movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is rated R. A bit out of the ordinary movies we talk about on this show. It is written by two gentlemen named Carrie Solomon and Chuck Konzelman. Now, you may not recognize those names, but you may recognize their top credit, which is God's Not Dead don don don
1: <laughs> I would feel like uh just the fact that like uh they made an R-rated movie is very bizarre because I feel like the the lead character in God's Not Dead would probably get in trouble with his wife or his mother for watching an R-rated movie. <laughs> probably lose sweater <laughs> privileges.
0: Yeah, I think uh I think there is like a s- there's got to be a subplot in one of the gods not dead movies. Them trying to make them watch a a an R rated movie to pass a college class or something like that's where it started, yes. and then they spun it up to get more dramatic. Uh, also featuring a cameo uh, by one Glenn Beck.
1: Aha! Uh-huh. Uh-huh.
0: Which, if you are of a certain age or just a blessed person who's not familiar with Glenn Beck, uh, he was a somewhere between Alex Jones and Tucker Carlson about ten years ago. Yep. He literally who had also, a big chalkboard where he wrote his conspiracies out for the uh, the many mammas and Peepaws who were watching his Fox News show <laughs> at 6 p.m.
2: <laughs> he also fancied himself a comedian. And I mean that literally. He literally performed stand-up co- comedy. He oh, also buddy. performed
0: a one-man show. Yeah. I believe revolved around his mini sweaters. I'm not making that part up. Uh, so... Yeah, there's a lot going on here. Um yes, it's literally called The Christmas Sweater. So, on brand as you may want to be. Um so I, I watched the trailer for this. Um I would descri- I would describe it as if you ask someone to rewrite Silence of the Lambs after mainlining some mega church sermons and taking a blow to the head. <laughs> Like, have you guys ever seen the show or the, uh, you may just be familiar with the GIF. There's a show called Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. It's no. like a, a very surrealist comedy. Uh, very, very funny. Um, you may have seen the, the GIF of his, his main character is a guy who's a horror writer and they like, it's like a found footage thing of the crappy TV show he made. It's intentionally bad. But so they'll cut to interviews with him and one of them is just him looking at the camera and screaming, I know writers who use subtext and they're all cowards. <laughs> <laughs> that's very much the ethos we have going on here. Yeah. Um uh I'm um, on the I'm on the Rotten Tomatoes page and I've got some I think we're all looking at some uh some reviews here. Uh Rotten Tomatoes. By the way, if anyone's wondering, uh 97% audience score, so that's good. 33% critic score. Aha. Oof. Maybe a little review stuffing going on there from the fine God's Not Dead Watchers. Um, but uh Billy Gudekunts of the Arizona Republic top critic, uh the blurb says, Subtlety is not the film's strong point. <laughs> Neither is casting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so basically the the idea is this guy's coming in, he's trying to like, oh, he's he's pretend to be a demon and he's faking it, and then he does like You'd think, oh, they at least do like a fun demon voice and like shinings or uh, exorcist style. No, it's just kind of him doing a voice.
1: One reviewer called it a Christo fascist manifesto.
0: Yes, I can't find like a full, full plot synopsis in any of these reviews, but apparently it becomes just a thing where this demon just says talking points that you can tell the. uh The. um Writers just want to get out there, yeah. And obviously, the the uh, the, the psychiatrist is an atheist, of course. In the trailer, he well, says, "I'm a demon." He goes, "Demons." He literally, this is the exact one. Demons—that's not a thing. So, thank you for trying to do a 2008 Joss Whedon impression in your Christian yeah. demon movie. <laughs> if you're such a non-believer, Edward, who's the demon guy, taunts. Then let me inhabit you. Then, yeah. this is from the Arizona Central Review, the, com- the confident James says, sure, why not? Dude, have you ever seen a horror movie? Yeah. <laughs> this, I think this gives you a very good indication of what's going on. A priest shows up to talk to Edward, who, while as nefarious, which as you may have caught on, is the name of the demon, uh, screams and says he isn't welcome until the priest assures him that the Catholic Church long ago evolved to believe that most of what people think of possession are in fact forms of mental illness. That's right. We can't fight the demons because the Catholic church is too woke. (laughs) 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 Meanwhile, Russell Crowe currently make, apparently currently making a movie called the Pope's exorcist where he plays an exorcist.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Come on, man.
0: It appears to be, and you you listener, you may be familiar. I, I think both, uh, Gently have read this particular work of of literature. The idea of the, there's a novel called The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, where the the idea is it's kind of this whole sweeping, huge, crazy Russian novel that's built around really kind of one conversation about the nature of God and humanity and good and evil in the universe. And again, it seems like this is that, but if written in crayon. <laughs> <laughs> we want to have, we want to have a big showdown of ideas, but we get so angry when we think about the other side's ideas that we can't write them, and also we're not very smart.
1: I think it's also important to realize that the crayon uh script was written on a napkin from Chick Fil A.
2: Oh no doubt. Well, that's definitely true. That's definitely true. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I have, I have an idea. Let me see.
0: Last time Jed had an idea, we got the uh, the Taco Bell song. So I'm excited.
2: <laughs> well, I'm just I'm, I'm thinking it'll take me a minute to summon this. Right. But I mean, like, I'm glad that you read. Sil- yeah, that's right. <laughs> not not a pun. Um, oh, no, I've got the perfect thing. I've got the perfect thing. OK, so um, I'm going to see if I can pull this off. Right, So part of what was great about uh, Silence of the Lambs, right, is you've got Anthony Hopkins, who's one of our greatest living actors. The man is an international treasure and, you know, he plays Dr. Hannibal Lecter to absolute perfection. And I could never pretend to be, um, anything close to that, but I have found an explanation. I have found something from the Chick-fil-A website that I, I would like, (laughs) I did not expect that to be where that went, Jen. I would like to present it. Let me, let me kind of get myself in mode you may be wondering why we're closed on Sundays. Our founder, Truett Cathy, made the decision to close on Sundays in 1946 <laughs> when he <laughs> opened his first restaurant. <laughs> like, I, I think, I think you can well literally, done. thank you, thank you. I think you can literally just take things from the Chick-fil-A website and do them in a vague, vaguely scary movie voice, and it would be better than nefarious.
0: <laughs> I think you could make a better horror movie about someone with a peanut allergy eating at a Chick-fil-A.
2: <laughs> also, the,
1: the end of the trailer is just, we close in on Jed's face with really, really extreme lighting, and he says, my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, you got it. I'm I'm reading from another review here, and it says, um, whereas many Christian-themed films depict non-believers being forced to confront their disbelief after witnessing or experiencing a miracle, this one goes in a different direction, forcing a non-believer to confront his disbelief after crossing paths with what may be a literal demon. I love the idea of taking a look at God's Not Dead and being like, was the was the scene where uh, Hercules gets shot at a newsboys concert and that's his come to faith moment? Was that too subtle? <laughs> was that not off-putting enough?
1: Hercules gets shot at a newsboys concert. What a great sentence.
0: It's a better sentence than it makes for a movie, there's no doubt about that. <laughs> Apparently, Glenn Beck's cameo is in the epilogue. He just does an extended speech. Cool. It, it makes you—if you suspect that culture war stuff will be included, you're correct. Abortion, diversity efforts, and same-sex marriage all get a critical inclusion. There's also—it's also stated that Hollywood intentionally infuses movies and television shows with immoral messages in order to corrupt people's minds.
2: You're making a uh-huh. movie. Yeah. This is a movie now. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I I love, and and I think this is very true to kind of American evangelicalism, is like people much better and more talented than you have already done the thing that you want to do. Like um, The Count of Monte Cristo is one of the greatest stories of all time. And the uh, version of it that was made, the Guy Pierce movie from a, a few years ago, is a masterpiece. It's an incredible film that. Half of the plot of the movie is about whether or not God is there and whether or not he cares. Like, it is the central conflict of the entire movie. You, you can leave this to the professionals. Like, right. if, if yeah, you don't yeah. have the horses to pull this off, that's cool, man. It's all right. This is why I don't write operas.
0: Also, Jed, would you would you like to have a uniquely internet bum-out moment that I can share with you now? Uh-oh. You mentioned that The Count of Monte Cristo came out a couple of years ago. Yeah. 2002.
2: No. Yep. I
0: reject that. <laughs> the Count of Monte Cristo can legally drink. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, uh, dead on. So, apparently, best I can piece together, uh, the, the demon uh, kind of starts giving out a bunch of, you know, culture war nonsense. And then uh, also wants the dude to consider Christianity?
2: Very conflicted demon.
0: Said, if Dr. Martin is the villain, the atheist, the atheist psychiatrist, that makes Nefarious the hero. Yes, he's a demon, but he's the demon who wants the big bad atheist to consider Christianity. You got so mad at atheists, you made the demon a good guy.
2: Wow. That's hard. That's, um, I don't even know what that is, man. I don't, wow. I I hate to be this reductive. This is really
1: dumb. Yeah. Yes, that is.
0: I think it's just really dumb. All these critics clearly had a word count to fill for their site, but I think Lee summed up the, uh, summed up the juice there. There's a thing. And I think we see it in all these movies, but there's a a phrase that I've, I've thought of a lot recently where someone was basically trying to answer the question, why aren't conservatives funny? Um, and the, the answer that this uh, professional comedian gave was, uh, for a lot of conservatives, who try to like do uh you know a funny thing or do a TV show or whatever, they get too mad in the middle of the setup and they never finish the joke. <laughs> yeah. And this movie seems like that. Like there's an inter there's a fairly interesting like maybe he's a demon, maybe he's not, maybe he's making up what his conception of evil would be. Maybe something's coming through, da da. And he just didn't do any of that It was like, oh yeah, he's a demon and he's pro pro gay rights and he wants you to become Christian for some reason.
2: I think I I may have – I'm going to refer back, uh, may he rest in peace, to the great Roger Ebert, who wrote a review of a horror movie, um, and it's one of my favorite reviews of all time because of how badly he hated the movie and he just savaged it. And so the movie he's reviewing doesn't actually matter, although it was a horror movie. But I'm going to read the closing paragraph of his review that I think strongly applies to Nefarious. Here it goes. Do yourself a favor. There are a lot of good movies playing right now that can make you feel a little happier, smarter, sexier, funnier, more excited, or more scared, if that's what you want. This is not one of them. Don't let it kill 98 minutes of your life. Wow. Jed? uh,
0: Very well put. Um, The runtime of Nefarious is exactly one hour, 38 minutes. And on that note,
2: we are done. (laughs) You are welcome.
0: We're out. Also, apparently, uh, what we learned is if a movie is one hour and thirty-eight minutes long, skip it. For some reason, that is a cursed length for a movie. But fifteen minutes is a great length for an emergency segment. So, on that note, we will declare emergency off. We're now going to go to your fine questions. If you have a question for us, you can have us all the way to the end. I some ways to get in touch, or you can scroll down in your episode description and click one of the links you find there. Our first question this week comes in and says, oh, this is slightly on topic. What is blasphemy? I hear you get tossed around mostly as a joke or an over-the-top accusation. Is that a real thing that happens and that people should worry about? So, an excellent question. And Jed, where would we kick this off?
2: That's a great question. So... If you look up, because the word blasphemy is used in in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and so you've got both a a Greek word for it and also a Hebrew word for it. And the original words have an implication of making light of something important, of trivializing something that really matters. And and generally something spiritual or religious in nature, but, you know, again, where there's something that's important, something that matters, we're going to trivialize it, we're going to make light of it. And I think part of why we may not have a a good sense of what blasphemy is, is our culture does that literally all day, every day with everything. We trivialize everything all the time. Like if you could be and I'm not just referring to Americans here. This is global Internet culture. Like if a culture can be blasphemous Even in a non-religious sense, that is the culture of the 21st century. We are determined to trivialize everything. And the reason why you shouldn't be blasphemous actually is not like a a magical thinking thing. It's that when you trivialize important things, there tend to be consequences. And um, the consequences can find you unaware because you weren't taking anything seriously. I'll give you a a non-spiritual example of this. Cooking can be a lot of fun. It's a useful skill to have um, unless you plan to eat only TV dinners for the rest of your life. You should definitely learn how to do some basic cooking. But kitchens are actually super easy places to get injured Um, between the sharp objects and the flames and the fact that, you know, there's foodborne illness. um, If you don't take those things seriously, sooner or later, you're going to wind up in the hospital. Uh, That's that's just the nature of of cooking. I say that as a person who has done everything wrong in the kitchen. So the idea of we don't joke about that does actually exist for a reason. Like there, there are plenty of things in life where the consequences are serious enough that we don't joke about that is actually a good place to begin. Maybe we don't need to stay there forever, but it's, it's, it's for sure a good place to start. It's worth noting, and I was thinking about this, I don't think I have a good explanation for, for why this is, but it's super, super true, is at least in America, there are a lot, and it's generally white guys from teenagers on up through you know older people, where their strongest desire in life is to make light of literally everything. <laughs> like yeah. if there's one thing that they consider a God given right, it's that I will make light of everything and anything that pushes back on that. I see as the ultimate, um, restriction of my freedoms. Um, and the, the complaint of course is, you know, you know, I, I guess you can't joke about anything anymore. Uh, but to take it back again to your question, Blasphemy, ultimately, about something spiritual or religious, is making light of important things. The reason not to be blasphemous about things that matter, you know, including something like cooking, is you set yourself up for a problem. You don't pay attention when you need to pay attention. There are bad consequences. This is why um, not making light of things in an inappropriate way is something to avoid.
0: A great place to start that off. And, Lee, where do we take it from there?
2: Excellent stuff.
1: Totally agree with where Jed's going on this. Just a couple of thoughts. Um I think that there's a there there's kind of another edge to this uh word, especially the 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 Greek word that we use for blasphemy that that it, it's about defaming, which is a it's the same concept that Jed's talking about. When you're making light or trivializing uh defaming is is something where you like like if you were going to sum somebody up, and you summed them up with something that had nothing to do with who they were, but you were serious about that. Like this, this person is about A, B, or C. But what I'm going to tell you is that this person is about, um, you know, uh, D, E, and F. Like this is a I'm I'm I am representing this person in completely completely the wrong way. When we were little kids, we were always taught, you know, to blaspheme is just to like just to, you know, take the the Lord's name in vain or whatever. If somebody. Somebody says God in a in a way that they're not referring to him or something. Then that was it. We were in trouble immediately. That was the that was the thing. Or you're blaspheming or something like that. And the sense that you get from these words, the sense that you get from Scripture, is that this has a whole lot more to do with the idea that that you would ascribe a nature or a character uh, when specifically when it comes to God. That you would ascribe a nature or a character that has nothing to do with who this person is—that's a serious deal, and it's it's something that's happening um, in our world, in our culture, all the time. That people are giving um, and basing their life and their faith and their beliefs, especially politically charged stuff, um, giving this representation of who God is or who Christ is or what people who follow Him should be. That have absolutely nothing to do with anything he cares about. Yeah. That's a much closer version of what blasphemy would be in the New Testament, or the, or even in the Old Testament, than it would be the idea of like you know you stubbed your toe and you said oh God you know where it, whereas that was the thing it was like oh man you have you have blasphemed or something like that. It's like no actually when we when when you use God as a way to control people and you give and you give um, them, like you hold them under the thumb or you give them something to do or something to side with or something to believe in that has, and you use him and his character and his nature as a way to manipulate people or as a a way to fire people up, and it has nothing to do, in fact, the opposite of who God is or what he cares about or what he's about, that is a much more dangerous ground of blasphemy. And that is definitely something we want to understand. And and by the way, it's not very difficult. If you want to understand what God cares about, if you want to understand his character and what he's like, you simply have to read the book. These people who represent him are constantly, especially politically charged stuff, especially a lot of weird church stuff, a lot of church and political stuff together. People are saying stuff that all you have to do is Read the book just a little bit, and you'll find out that's not who God is. That's yep. not what God is about. That's not what He cares about. That's not what He that's not what He wants you to major on. And um, it, it it is simple to find out. But that is a very clear version of what blasphemy looks like in our culture these days.
0: I think that's fantastic stuff from both of these guys. Um, kind of the the crux of verse you probably you probably think of most, or you may have heard most when it comes to blasphemy, exactly as he's discussing there is from the Ten Commandments. It's Exodus 27. It says, you may have heard it said, you will not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. I actually like the NIV's translation. It says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord Mm -hmm. will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. So if you do, as we have uh, talked about on the show before, go over to Bible Hub or somewhere else and do the interlinear where you can kind of go word by word and click on that word for misuse or um, in vain. You'll find that it is a Hebrew word that has a lot of definitions. The other places it gets used is talking about falseness. So false witness or vanity or emptiness. So and if you go to uh, the kind of dictionary that Bible hub uses, uh, the first definition they give is emptiness or vanity, emptiness, nothingness, vanity, emptiness of speech. So it kind of exactly tracks what Lee's saying there. It's less stubbing your toe and using a very, uh, colorful and controversial, but I find very a uh, very uh, syllabically pleasing uh, curse word that happens in moments like that. That's one thing, but to use the name of God in ways that are emptiness, empty or nothingness, or serve your own vanity, that's that's not good. We talked about before. You know, we, we we've talked about, I made the joke several times on the show of, oh gosh, somebody did something that even offended us. And that often falls in what I would consider blasphemy in the sense of, well, I, God must hate this group of people that I hate, or God wants you to give me money to buy my thing, or, or just kind of doing your own thing and throwing a little God on top of it in a way that is not right. in any way considering what you're saying and what you're implying and what you are saying about this other person, about God, using that name of God. Kind of get what you want, I think, is exact to give a little concrete example there of exactly what Lee's saying and how this breaks down in a practical way. So let's move on to our next question here. It comes in and says, In Mark 6, Jesus talks about being a prophet without honor in his own hometown. I feel like the only time the only thing I hear people say about this passage is comparing themselves or someone else to Jesus in this scenario. Is there anything else this story tells us about Jesus? Uh, Jed, love to use you to start us off here. I, I like this question a lot. I, I totally agree with our question askers. As I read this, I was kind of reading through if everything I've ever can recall hearing from a pulpit or in a book about a prophet without honor is someone saying either I, the speaker, or I know you, the listener, can, can relate to that and being without honor in your own, own hometown. And then they just kind of move on. And that's a perfectly yeah. reasonable and, and useful thing to look at in this passage because I think it's a very... A very universal and interesting kind of feeling that summed up very well. But is there anything this passage can tell us about Jesus Himself?
2: There sure is. So, because it's short, let's just read it together. So, I'm in the NIV. This is Mark chapter six, starting with verse one, ending at verse six. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Quote, "Where did this man get these things?" End quote. they asked. Quote, what's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? End quote. And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, quote, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. End quote. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. I think there's a a couple of things that I think this definitely suggests about Jesus. They're actually pretty cool. So the first is Jesus is not Obi-Wan. Let me explain what I mean, right? The classic thing of the Jedi mind trick. These are not the droids you're looking for. Oh, those are not the droids we're looking for. We're free to go. You're free to go. Jesus doesn't do that. Does Jesus have the ability to overwhelm people and make them think something or make them believe something? I guess, like probably what with being God and all, but he doesn't. One of the fascinating things from this moment is Jesus doesn't make people think or feel certain things. He doesn't make people believe certain things. With huge apologies to all our Calvinist friends, Jesus doesn't make people believe certain things. Instead, he lets people decide what they decide even when they are deciding on incredible foolishness. Let's go back and look at a verse here because it, I, I think it's kind of fascinating, right? Like the comments that the people make, you know, I mean, it's, they're, they're, they're talking smack, right? And so who knows, you know, uh, what they'd seen and what they hadn't and how much of sarcasm. But in verse 5, Jesus could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Jesus still healed sick people there. Like, if you wanted to be clear on whether this was legit or not, you you could literally, even with their amazing lack of faith, you could literally watch Jesus heal people on the spot, if you so choose. And a large number of people are like, nah, I'm not feeling that, I'm, I'm not going to do that. So, it suggests that um, Jesus... Leaves us the freedom to decide what we want to think and what we want to feel and what we want to believe, even knowing that we may go in a pretty almost absurd uh, direction with us. And I think it suggests one other thing which does kind of link back to what it means for you specifically, which is: Jesus knows what it feels like to be in a situation where people should be taking you seriously and are not. Mm. I think one of the things in life that hurts the most is being in an environment. This could be as a part of a group. It could be as a part of an employment situation. It could be in the context of of an interpersonal relationship where you have earned credibility. You have earned the right to be trusted. You have earned the right to be heard. You have, you know, earned the right to be uh, respected, to the the very least have your point of view uh, considered and not derided and to not have that happen like that's you know most of us are going to experience that a few times in our lives and it it really super super sucks it's really not fun it's really unpleasant and one of the things that this story tells us clearly is that Jesus knows exactly what that feels like and it also means that there's no such thing as being so awesome that that's not still a risk wow yeah one of the things that i americans at least definitely believe is if i just rock hard enough it'll all work out. If I'm just awesome enough, it'll work out. If I'm just impressive enough, it'll it'll work out. If I just use the right magical words, it'll work out. If I just if I'm good enough and smart enough and impressive enough and I have enough followers on Instagram, if I have everything in place, it'll it'll force it to work out. And this story says that that's not true. And that Jesus understands that that's not true and that he is able as it says elsewhere in scripture to empathize with us in the midst of those hard times where life feels, uh, and justifiably so, wildly unfair.
0: Hmm. Oh, fantastic place to start that off. And Lee, what would we add to that?
1: That was fantastic. I, I loved what Jed said there. Just a couple of quick thoughts. One is, it strikes me that one of the biggest problems that that the people in Jesus' hometown had about Jesus was that they had gotten to a place where they were not people who were curious. They basically stated, we know this guy. I'm, I don't have an open mind for what he could be because I watched him grow up. I've already decided who he is. Um, I think it's an important thing with really anyone, you know, not just, not just the son of God who has come into your, life, who is, who has entered the scene of the world. Um, but like, Anybody that you're in a relationship with, it is a good idea to always remain curious about that person. Always be asking questions. Always give them room to grow. Always give them a space to surprise you. That's a very good thing. One of the worst things that can happen to human beings in relationships and in their interpersonal self is when we when we get to a place where we are no longer curious. So that's that's kind of thought number one there. There's a thought. Just mentioned briefly, we talked about this actually in the last episode, but there's a companion story to this story in the Gospel of Luke when, um, when Jesus is, again, teaching in his hometown. And we get a little bit of kind of a zoomed-in version of some of the thing that changed the tide of people being offended about Jesus was that he talked about the fact that he cared about people from um, a place called Zarephath. He cared about people from a place called Sidon. He cared about uh people from a pla- from a place called the Decapolis, he cared about Samaritans, and he cared about outcasts. He cared about foreigners and he cared about outcasts, and they really really didn't like that. They liked the idea that they were the special ones and that if if he was going to and if he was going to be amazing, part of the thing that made him amazing was that he was from their place which was special. We're almost Jesus. He's like us, just kind of a little bit more amazing version, but, you know, essentially he's us. And that, you know, that Jesus was really telling people like the kingdom of God is for everyone. It's for people that you don't like. It's for people that are outside of your conception of what matters, all of that stuff. Um, Again, I I think a, a really cool couple of thoughts for us in about Jesus from this story. One, we should always remain curious about everybody that we're in relationship with get being incurious is a is a really really bad thing that that makes you a person that basically can't grow, and we should always be curious about jesus and um and just to know that the the mercy and the acceptance and the love of Jesus is so much bigger and so much more widespread than we can possibly imagine It's what got him in trouble it's what made people upset with him It's when people got offended when was when they realized that he cared about people that they didn't. And that's an important thing for us to remember as well.
0: I think that's great stuff from both of these guys. I would I'd add on the end here, exactly as Lee's saying, I think the idea of remaining curious, of continuing to engage in relationships, is a huge part of the story, but I would I would say that on top of what he was saying, which is absolutely spot on about your own just kind of relationships with other people, there is an element here of um Don't assume you know the extent of what Jesus can do or what he would say in any kind of given situation. The idea that you know Jesus well enough to know what he can and can't or would or wouldn't do or would or wouldn't say is a very dangerous place to be as someone of faith because uh, you might miss out on a bunch of stuff. If, If God can no longer surprise you, then you are definitely putting God in a box that is limiting your conception of the world. You know, as kind of, we joked about earlier of the, you know, with the, kind of the perfect theology thing, there's God is infinite and you are finite. So by definition, he should be doing stuff that surprises you quite often, <laughs> uh, be that doing stuff or you having ideas or kind of answers to questions that aren't exactly what you saw coming. That should be happening with a certain regularity. And as you grow and get better and uh, kind of listen to that and hear more stuff, you you might find some stuff lines up more often than it used to, or you have encountered a situation before that you can apply some past wisdom to. But the idea of, uh, no, I know, I know, I know how this one ends, I know how this ends up and this works out, as Lee points out, I think exactly fairly harmful when you apply it to relationships with other people um, and just kind of jump to the end, but also can be really limiting and uh, rob you of some, I think, some really cool stuff when you apply that to your relationship with God. So on top of the other great stuff these guys gave you, I I would, my main takeaway when I encounter this story is don't assume that you know what God's going to do when he shows up in a situation because oftentimes that's going to come down to just what you think you would do. And then that kind of loops us back into the blasphemy thing yeah. from before you get a little, a little, a bit of an unhelpful loop in that way. That leads us to our final question here, which comes in and says, what's the difference between feeling like God is leading you to do something and just thinking it's a good idea. I think another very, very interesting question. And Jed, where do we start off with
2: this? I love it. I think it's a great question. And I think that, to answer it fairly kind of crosses into the realm of mysticism. And the reason that I specify that is by definition, when we're dealing with things that are, that are mystical, we're not dealing with one size fits all solutions, nor are we dealing with things that are particularly easy to describe and to put boundaries on. Um, and so I've got a couple of thoughts for you, but, um, this will be a bit of a um touchy feely response because it's at at core it's it's a pretty touchy feely subject so across a lot of faith traditions uh, certainly includes everyone i can think of and people who who don't subscribe to any faith at all i think many many people have moments in their life where they feel a pull in their heart to go a certain way to to do a certain thing to take a certain step and they they don't know why exactly they they feel that pull but but they do um and and some people uh, would ascribe that to the still small voice uh, christians would would often describe that as the holy spirit i know people that would talk about i feel like the universe is trying to to get my attention um, but I think I think many people, maybe not everybody, but I think many people have at least a couple of times in their life experienced moments where it's just there is something inside of you, something in this combination of your heart and brain that's kind of not screaming at you, but kind of insistently saying you should go this way. And for what it's worth, actually, that's that's literally what the Bible describes. There's this amazing passage. This is Isaiah 30, 21 where it says, whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, quote, this is the way, walk in it. And again, I think that a lot of people across a wide range of, of faith traditions or, or no faith at all have very much experienced that. But now here's what's interesting is it's not often that that pull, that that sense of leading coincides with things that are easy or convenient or profitable. Right. And I think that that's where we start to get into the difference. Um, Things that are a good idea are generally some combination of easy and convenient and strategic and profitable. Um, And um, that's fine. That's that's how most of us make decisions all the time. But a sense of leading, no matter what source you would ascribe it to, kind of by definition doesn't have to abide by those rules, and very rarely does. It doesn't have to be easy or convenient or strategic or, or profitable. And here's one of the great things about it, and if there's one thing I would encourage you to take away, it's this, is when you feel a sense of leading in your heart, you don't have to justify it. There are some things that you know simply because you know them. You love your mother. How do you know that? Can you prove it to me? Can you look up a Bible verse that tells me that you love your mother, that you specifically love your mother? I don't I don't think you can. Can you can you do some literal math that shows me that you specifically love your mother? I don't think you can. But you know that you do. And if you don't love your mother, maybe you love your grandmother. There's a person in your life that you love and that you love a lot that you can't you can't really prove. You just you do and you you know that you do. Life is full of things that we know in ways that we cannot explain and we can't fully put into the words. And that's okay. And um, the Apostle Paul describes many things in the Bible as a mystery um, and suggests that they are beyond full human knowledge or full human explanation. That's all right. It's all, it's all, it's all normal. We don't have to justify the things that, that our heart knows. Here's where we get can get into trouble, and I think it's where we want to link the ideas of a leading to do something and thinking it's a good idea. Being led to do something doesn't absolve you of common sense. It doesn't absolve you of a need to plan. It doesn't absolve you of a need to explain what you want to do to stakeholders in your life in a way that makes sense to them, separate from, I feel led to do this, so I will do it now. Leading is oftentimes the beginning of an internal conversation, but it is very rarely the end of conversations. Um, I think I have seen plenty of people say, I'm going to do this because I am led to do it. And people say, well, what about these dozen logistical concerns? Nope, I'm led to do this. I will do it. And that's that's not a good idea. The, you know, We can be led to do something and think it all the way through and figure out how to do it in a smart, strategic, uh, uh, profitable, good, effective way. So to be a human being is this interesting um, dichotomy of we. There are many things that we will know that we're not sure how we know, but it doesn't lessen the fact that we know them. But we still have, need to figure out how to implement things in a world where doing something smart and well thought out does matter, and a sense of leading doesn't exempt us from the need to plan.
0: I think that's a really, really solid foundation to start that off on. And Lee, where do we close this out?
1: Completely agree with all that. I, I really just want to add in one element of something that a piece of advice as you go into that exact journey that Jed's talking about. And I, I, I mentioned this just kind of out of my own experience of trying to figure out what it means to be led and, and um, how do I, how do I know that this is just something that's not just something that I'm feeling? How do I know that this is the real deal? So. Uh, This concept is, I think one of the most important elements is, am I willing to be honest with myself about what I feel about this decision I'm making? That is really, and the reason that I think this is important is because if I have any elements of shame or fear, I'm going to be completely distracted. From anything that God might lead me into, or any or anything that might otherwise make sense, all that kind of stuff. A really interesting thing about my understanding of who the Lord is is that He does not, um, He doesn't ever shame people for being honest with Him. He wants people to tell me what you're really feeling here. Tell me what you're going through. If you're afraid, great we can deal with that. If you if you feel um you know, if you feel excited about this thing, great. If you are on something that is wrong and that's a sin, okay, we we've got forgiveness and grace for that. We can talk through whatever this thing might be. But the key element here is I have to start from a place of being able to be honest with myself. Why is it that if I if I'm feeling a, a leading into door number 1, but i really really want to go through door number 2 can i be honest about why that is if i can have that conversation with the lord i think we're going to get to a much clearer version of what it feels like to be led i don't know that i don't know that i'm going to experience that mysterious mystical thing that jed is talking about if i'm not willing to be honest with myself because i'm going to carry all this shame and fear into this thing and i'm probably making excuses and i'm probably Just, you know, I'm finding every little loophole and reason to just get back to that thing that I already know that I want to do, rather than being able to face the leading. If I'm willing to be honest, if I'm willing to deal with all of that shame, even if it's a funky desire that I have or whatever, the Lord is willing to enter into all of those conversations. And if we can just have those conversations honestly, I think we can get to a a place of having a quieter mind, of having a clearer space, where some of that leading can happen, and then we can enter into um, the wisdom and the common sense and the wise counsel that Jed's talking about out of that. But I think the, the biggest place to start for my money and in my, my experience is just the question, am I willing to answer really honest questions about why I want this or why I don't want that or what I'm facing or what I'm thinking through?
0: Fantastic stuff from both of these guys. I would just follow on that thread that Lee is giving you there of, and it kind of takes it back to where Jed started as well. I think there is not necessarily a common, but an, a misconception that is often had, and we all fall prey to it in some way way or another, some time or another, I think, of the the calling will be the big moment of inspiration, and I'll get the flash of lightning, and then it will be on me to figure it out. Or, and there's the kind of the other flip side of that is I will decide what I want, and I will kind of start stumbling in that direction, and I will know if that's good or not whether on whether or not um weird semi miraculous inexplicable things happen to make it so that that can happen and w- we've talked in the show a lot over the years of you know some of that is uh, some of that is human nature, some of that is fed by uh people who write books and preach sermons and stuff, giving uh some very some after the fact narratives that uh, probably skip over a lot and find a lot of meaning in something that happens once you know how the story ends or where we got to here. And there's nothing inherently wrong or nefarious about that. That's the way people tell stories, but uh, people telling stories in hindsight is often is very rarely a good metric for how you should do when you're building things that haven't happened yet. But I, I think what both these guys pointed to, and it's absolutely to me the right thing to take away is that calling and figuring it out and good idea. All of that is a process and all that's going to to be continuous needs to have checking in just because you were called in a direction a couple of years ago. doesn't mean you're still called in that direction just because you got called in a direction doesn't mean you got called to finish that thing out in the way that you thought finishing it out would look like before you moved on to the next thing. Um, it, and then that's throughout Scripture. That's literally from from Abraham on down. Is things that took a lot longer than people thought they should. That went in far more circuitous and confusing and doubling back, non direct ways than the person involved thought they should. Didn't make them. Didn't make it any less of a calling. Didn't mean God was any any less involved in it. But um, I think sometimes we get this idea that the more I, I will know something is of God because it will be clearer and less frustrating and more linear. And um, that has not been my experience. I don't think it's been the experience of my co-host. And I don't think it's really the witness of scripture. Uh, so uh, calling is great to seek out. And the other thing I'll the end here is not to go too far the other way. And I think some people get a little caught up in the more this seems like a really bad idea, the more super faithful it is. I know that I'm supposed to go across the country and I know that because my car is falling apart and I don't have gas money, but that's how it's a, I know it's a, it's an act of faith that only, only the supernatural inner in intercession of the Holy Spirit is going to get this car to the other side of the country. Maybe, but that doesn't inherently mean that it's from God just because it's a bad idea. There's also a lot of stuff in the Bible About making a plan and taking, you know, a couple of cloaks and the Lord, you know, looks count the cost and all those things. So uh, planning is not the end all be all, but it also is not something we need to be afraid of and think that planning, having a plan or something that makes sense, makes us unfaithful or all that. All this is uh, the mix and the journey, I think, are both important things as we look at how to think about this. All right. If you have a question for us at podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumble.com slash ask. If you want to keep that entirely anonymous, Taylor, the song this week. This is from Lee. It's called You Delighted to Me. Taylor, thanks. Thanks for listening. Just remember we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it.
3: You reached down for me. You took hold of me. Lord, you rescued me from my enemy. You reached down for me. You took hold of me. Rescued me from my enemy from under deep waters when I was too weak in the day of disaster.